Hey guys, this is M jumping in here with a quick note before the episode. We're about to talk about pregnancy and childbirth. Throughout the episode, we refer to the people who are pregnant as pregnant women, since in the Middle Ages, pregnant people were externally identified as women, although pregnant people don't have to be women. On the whole, we don't really have information on how the people discussed here identified. So while they may have considered themselves women, we don't know that they didn't consider themselves something else. If there's one thing we've tried to push back on in this show, it's that the Middle Ages were not the good old days of gender essentialism, when men were real men, women were real women, and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. In fact, we also discussed James Barry, a trans man who was the first doctor to perform a successful cesarean section in the British Empire, and the doctor who signed Barry's death certificate, assigning him male, later said, following the quote-unquote discovery that Barry was assigned female at birth, that he believed Barry to be intersex. However, he used the term common at the time, which is considered a slur today, hermaphrodite. Jesse quotes this term when discussing the doctor's comments, we want to be clear that although this was considered the proper medical term by the doctor at the time, intersex is the proper term today. Also, the modern term trans did not exist in Barry's lifetime, and it is worth noting that throughout Western history, individuals who might identify as trans today often identified as intersex, which was a societally recognized gender. So the doctor seems to have been affirming Barry's identity. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me today, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, um, this is an exciting episode for me. This is actually sort of my second episode back after having a baby, and we're going to talk about childbirth and child-rearing. Yay! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Yeah, I have to the say... The medieval way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that as someone who's had um, two C-sections, I'm very aware that, I don't know, I probably wouldn't have lived <laughs> in the Middle Ages, or if I had, uh, it would have been, I don't know, it would have been very difficult. I know that the first um, C-section that somebody really survived was in, like, 1820. The mother survived, yeah. I guess I should say. Right. They'd done them before, yeah. but... It's actually... Yeah, it's a little unclear, actually, how... When the first one was done where everyone survived. Um, the one that we're talking about... We might as well mention it, right? Um, by James Berry. Yeah. Um, who was a trans doctor. And um, that was, of course, not the term at the time, but lived his life as a man. Very clearly, not just to be a doctor, but very much lived his life as a man. So, um, yeah. And is the first person credited, the first Westerner <laughs> or European yes, credited with having performed a successful C-section where everyone died in the British Empire. Oh, where everyone so lived, there's, right? Yes, where everyone lived. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, where the mother lived and the child lived. Sorry, yes. where the mother did not die and the child did not die. Yeah, so everyone lived. This is the British Empire. 
Um, but the interesting thing is that in Africa, um, there were successful C-sections performed by local um, medical, you know, medical is kind of a Western term. So in that sense, we could say local, um, you know, medical personnel or medicine mm-hmm. men, but gives, gives sort of the wrong colonialist idea, but, you know, local doctors, essentially. Okay. Um, wow, with local practices. That. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, and there's, they would use alcohol, like wine, usually made of some type of fruit or something, as kind of as anesthetic for the mother, but okay. also as an, also kind of as an antiseptic. Okay, that makes sense. So there was an awareness, obviously, of both of these things, yeah. And then on top of that, um, you know, and stitched together Stitches sort of work the same way they do now, but it would usually mm-hmm. be like a plant fiber or something. Um, but yeah, and so, and there are people who record seeing this done with local practices. Hmm. And so, um, right, which is why we now sort of qualify. James Berry becomes the first sort of Westerner to do this in the British Empire that we know of, using this sort of modern Western medical practice. Um, yeah, and so, basically... Um, yeah, there's a sort of really interesting history of when was the first one done that was successful in the sense that everybody lived. Mm-hmm. For a long time, of course, successful meant the child lived. It was assumed, however, that the mother had already died. I mean, that that's right. why you do one. Right. Um, yeah. And so obviously... Um, Which, as the you mother know, in this case, is not ideal, I would say. I mean, you know, yay, children yeah. living, but boo, <laughs> dying. Right. Um, well, obviously, but yeah, so the first sort of successful everyone living, it's a little hard to pinpoint because, um, records being what they are. So there are possibly like even in the 1500s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And the, one of the interesting things is that probably some of the earliest successful ones in the West were not done in hospitals, basically. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before because we sort of mentioned the idea of antiseptic, right? Right, and washing and your hands. Guy- mm-hmm. And that the guy who um, sort of, you know, came up with the idea. Oh, yes, right? the Hungarian gentleman. Yes, Semmelweis. Yeah. Ignatz Semmelweis. Um, yeah, that he realized um, because, you know, there was the the hospitals, right? And one was like midwives, basically, nurses, midwives, and the other was the doctors. And at the doctor hospital, where doctors performed all the procedures, um, women were dying in childbirth at clearly much higher, much, much higher (laughs) rates. Hmm. And yes, so why was this? And he decided, he realized ultimately that it was because Doctors also did um, autopsies mm-hmm. on dead bodies, which midwives at the, that hospital that was just a midwife hospital did not, because only doctors were allowed to do that. Um, and remember, like, his friend nicked himself in one, died of sepsis, and when Semmelweis autopsied his friend, he realized that this is exactly what the women were dying of. Hmm. And so he theorized that there were little particles, so that's why he made everyone wash your hands, right? That there were particles that doctors would perform autopsies on dead bodies and then go deliver babies, and there were invisible particles that they were clearly carrying with them. 
<laughs> and everyone thought he was crazy, and he was not crazy. Yeah. It turns out he was very correct. Yes. That's a good so, observation. Um, yeah. And um, thus, of course, begins... that. This is two things that we should talk about. <laughs> so one of them, of course, is childbirth itself. And the other is the extent to which men are involved in childbirth. Right. So... <laughs> um, and this is the funny part, right? Because, of course, men can be excellent doctors. Yeah. So Semmelweis himself is a great example. He was a fantastic doctor. He did exactly what we were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You realize something is wrong. You apply the scientific method. You come up with a solution. When he forced people to wash their hands, then the rates at his hospital equaled the rates at the sort of midwife-only hospital. Mm-hmm. So he knew that that was clearly what was going on, and that washing your hands obviously did something, right? Mm -hmm. There was something on your hands after you performed an autopsy that if you washed them, it went away. Yes. (laughs) And then you would not kill the woman, right? Yep. Um, This is a a scientific method. You propose, you notice a connection (laughs) or a correlation, you propose a mechanism by which it's working, and then you propose a method to test it. Yes. And, um, yeah, he was right. And, of course, now we know he was right. And not only do we know he was right, everyone out there should probably still be washing their hands, because I can't imagine that COVID has gone in, like, the couple months from now until <laughs> we actually post this. <laughs> right. I mean, I have been so healthy since we all started washing our hands for 20 seconds. Yes, and we're I'm never going to stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. As someone mm-hmm. who has small children, prior to COVID, I was sick every other month, you know? Yeah. And I mean, now, I teach college students, so yeah. same thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, when you go on a plane and the recycled air is just pumped back in and everyone knows it doesn't filter out diseases, mm-hmm. of course you get sick when you come home from a trip and people are like, oh, your immune system is lower. Because, well, no, but you were on a plane a couple times around and one of those times you got something. You know, yeah. it's just inevitable. <laughs> but now you have to wear a mask, and everyone has to wear a mask. Yes. But yeah, so um, so number one, right, this sense of childbirth itself is a process. Um, caesareans, some of the earliest successful ones, probably start in the 1500s. Um, and there are a number of interesting records. Like I said, not in hospitals necessarily, but there are records. Um, there are some Jewish doctors who are credited with having performed very early, sort of late medieval slash early modern caesareans. This goes back, of course, to the fact that being a doctor is one of the professions that Jews were allowed to sort of follow yes. and has, of course, since become stereotypical <laughs> for that reason. Um, and was stereotypical in the Middle Ages for that reason as right. well. But anyway, so, so there are these um, stories some of which, you know, as you head towards the late Middle Ages and early modern period, could be true. Um, and that's partly because you are talking about people who did not necessarily know about, you know, <laughs> um, bacteria, obviously, mm-hmm. and did not sort of know to make things sterile necessarily, but were by this time using tools and so on that would have been less likely to transfer disease. Hmm. Um, did, you know, clean the idea of sort of cleaning things. Yeah. You didn't, you weren't sterilizing necessarily, but, um, you know, and the idea that of course, this is one of the other points about sort of, um, Africa that, um, while, you know, Barry, of course, at this point, 
um, the idea of sort of cleanliness is becoming more known. Sterilization hasn't fully caught on yet, but will. Um, there's also the interesting fact that, of course, you know, people did know in a lot of cultures that certain things were what they would say medicinal, mm. right? And medicinal can cover a lot of things. It can cover, of course, drugs, um, hallucinogens, but can also very much cover things that are antiseptic, right? Yeah. And that is not necessarily – so it's not to say that people knew that that's what was going on, but they recognized that if you, like, had a certain, you know, salve or something, um, or if you used, like, some – you know, if you used alcohol, basically, mm-hmm. as a kind of – cleansing liquid <laughs> instead of water, maybe in certain cases that people are more likely to live. Sure. Um, and of course now we can explain it, but people were doing some of those things. So, so that's sort of the, anyway, so cesarean has been around successfully, regularly successfully since about the 1800s. Yeah. But before that, there were definitely a few hundred years when, um, there probably were successful cesareans. Um, and clearly, there's certainly a lot of stories that may not be true, but clearly there are some that were, because people definitely believed it could be done. Hmm. Right? So even if not all the stories are true, it does seem that some of them were, because it yeah. was it was absolutely considered to be something that was possible. <laughs> so your chances were better um, than the zero that I was assuming, which is... Yes. Nice. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so, of course, right, so this brings us into, yes, what is my favorite? <laughs> All right. Yay. So, in childbirth, because, of course, it is dangerous, um, you got to pray to a lot of people. And so, we've actually talked, um, I think, our Valentine's Day episode, I believe I'm correct in saying, we talked a little bit about stones, because I think we mentioned that- Oh, yes, like, gemstones. Amethyst. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I know I did a note about, like, lapidaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Middle Ages, you know, stones were thought to have all these properties, which is where we get birthstones today, of course. Um, and you might carve them with special things that would then give them even more magical properties. Um, and basically, there are certain stones that were thought of similarly. You might carve them, things like this, um, for childbirth, right? So you might wear something, right? Um so certain stones, relics, so saints' relics, of course, also could protect you. Um, you would pray to them, or if you were wealthy, you might have one, or the church would loan it to you to, like, hold on to. Um, also, so this is where I, we get into the stuff I like quite a lot, um, famous belts and girdles. Um, so you might have one that had been, like, just blessed by a priest or something. That's, you know, if you're poor, of course, you gotta make do with what you've got. Mm -hmm. But, um, there are other ones that are famous that were relics. So Westminster Abbey supposedly had the Virgin Mary's girdle, which you will notice assumes that she dressed the way women dressed in the Middle Ages. Yeah. (laughs) Which I love. Um, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know. What did Jewish peasant women wear at the turn of the millennium (laughs) in the Middle East? This is a question. Um, You know, I mean, they They wore sort of what people wear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something. Uh, What was the underwear situation? These are questions. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Underwear situation probably probably not stays or... Yes. 
little not not precisely like the medieval yeah <laughs> yeah um and so we have yeah so the sense of right but of course you always make these things contemporary mm-hmm. there's always a sense of them being contemporary and you know when you see paintings of course medieval paintings of you know, mary the christ child of course they're dressed like the time and place the painting was made mm-hmm. also like royalty in the time and place the painting was made they're never dressed like peasants a couple exceptions here there but you know so the point is um westminster abbey said it had the virgin's girdle um, and this was loaned to royal women when they gave birth. That is obviously because the Virgin Mary famously had a, like, painless immediate delivery. Oh, yeah, because of not having original sin, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, because her mother also, and this is much later, this was a big argument until recently, actually, until the modern era. Oh, wow. So it was a big argument in the Middle Ages, but it was widely believed it was not necessarily condoned by the church until recently, but it was widely believed that Mary's mother immaculately conceived Mary. And okay. therefore, Mary was born without original sin, yes, herself. And, so yes. when we say the immaculate conception, um, a lot of times we are – the actual point is Mary's conception, not Jesus's, mm-hmm. which of course was immaculate. Right. Obviously. <laughs> And because but the, the, the question is, the punishment for original sin was pain during childbirth, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is one of the big ones. Yes. So um, pain during childbirth, and also like snakes will attack you, and women will <laughs> hit them with hoes and shovels or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always imagine, you know, because like. Wh- obviously, this is also sort of, <laughs> but you know, the garden hoe. Imagine women like. Oh, yeah. Decapitating snakes in their garden with it. Yes. Anyway, um, but yes, so all of this is the punishment. But yeah, pain is part of the punishment. So, um, yeah, so Mary's. So the girdle was for them to, like, hold on to while they gave birth or just have around or wear? You wouldn't wear it, it's a relic. Yes. Well, he- probably it would be, like, laid on top of them. Okay. Right. You know, like a sure. sheet. Okay. It's a girdle, of course. But yes, like a little blanket. Yeah. Um, and the idea is, yes, because this is the whole point, really, of relics, that mm-hmm. why you touch them, right, is because then, and usually, like, if you if you can actually touch a relic, you want to touch it to the part of you that's afflicted. Oh. Okay. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. So it would be laid on top of a woman as she's giving birth, for example. Um, but yeah, obviously, this was only for special... This was only for royal women. Other places had similar relics. I mean, certainly other places had Mary's girdle as well. Um, and the same thing would happen. Obviously, if you're poor, you have to make do with your own girdle. Maybe you can have a priest bless it. Maybe, you know, you're just going to pray to the virgin while, like, holding it and, like, imagining it as hers. You know, there are all sorts of things that poor the poor can do right. <laughs> to make do. Um and there are a number of saints you might pray to, of course, besides the Virgin, who obviously, obviously Christ himself as a child, you would pray, of course, to the Christ child. This is something I think we haven't maybe covered or pointed out, which has occurred to me in this episode, which is that, um, of course, <laughs> Jesus, you know, is born and grows up and dies as an adult, but you can pray to him as at different points in his life, oh. which is to say you can pray to the Christ child mm-hmm. and there is a sort of assumption that you are talking to him as a baby that this is kind of an eternal persona just like of course his adult self is an eternal persona because it's all 
you know, because the immortal part of him was always the same. Right. Basically. <laughs> so um, the part of him that was the son of God was always the same. And so you can like basically pray to him and be like, remember when you were a child? But that's not quite what you do. You like pray to the Christ child. Right. Okay. And of course, the point is that as a baby, you know, he wants to help you out. Right. Um, there's also another child saint who was really popular in a variety of places around Europe. Um, Sire or Syracuse. This is with a C-Y-R. Mm -hmm. um, and he's martyred with his mother, Julita, possibly in Tarsus around like 300, which is generally when people we don't know if they were real were martyred. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but basically, he's a baby or maybe a toddler. It's a little unclear. Can he walk yet? We're not quite sure. But somewhere between like one and three or something. Um, and his mother is Christian and she... You know, do they escape, like, to Tarsus or that? Maybe. Anyway, and, um, but then, you know, they're seen, and she admits she's a Christian, and, you know, she's gonna be put to death, and the baby, like, scratches someone or something, and so he's killed, so they're both martyred. Anyway, so you pray to him, because he's a baby. Okay. You know, he wants to help you out <laughs> with childbirth. Yeah. Um, so these are some of the saints you might pray to, but most famously, you would pray to St. Margaret of Antioch. Okay. Who's the best. Yeah. Um, so St. Margaret is also St. Marina in Greek. So you remember Brother Marinos gets yeah. his name from from this. Yeah. Okay. And there's actually some Old English versions of the story that seem to have been at least partially taken from Greek sources that call her Marina. So she's again really early. She's martyred. Also, right, as I said, with people we don't really know, she's generally assumed to have been martyred around like 300. Okay. <laughs> You know, like, it's a good date. <laughs> Is there a lot going on in Antioch? Yes. It's one of the big places. Okay. Yes, the Holy Hand Grenade yes. of Antioch. There are many things in Antioch, yes. Um, but yes, this is, of course, why it shows up, because it is one of these well-known places. Um, so, Margaret, um, and so the the sort of, um, the, <laughs> the clearinghouse for medieval hagiography um, is the Golden Legend, or the Legenda Aurea, written in Latin, of course, um, by Jacobus de Vorgine in Latin, or Giacomo de Verace in Italian, which he was. Um, and he was he was Dominican, he was the Archbishop of Genoa. Okay. Um, and he famously, famously compiled this huge set of saints' lives, right, hagiographies, um, basically following feast days, right? You know, every day of the year is the feast day for countless saints. Mm -hmm. Who are they? Why are you celebrating them? What did they do? Yeah. Somebody has to tell you, right? So it's very much like Ovid's Metamorphosis or Grimm's Fairy Tales, right? Sometimes people come along and they helpfully compile the best known versions of stuff. Okay. Um, and the Golden Legend <laughs> helpfully compiles the best-known versions of saints' lives for quite a lot of them, you know, for the sort of the calendar year. And so this is – so we're going to use him as kind of our source here for, for Margaret, um, which but he points out, by the way, and this is true, uh, means pearl. Okay. So, you know, again, right? So again, the symbolism we've talked before about, like, Christopher, who's close – right? So Margaret, the idea that she's this pearl, you know – a pearl is symbolic of purity, right? Okay. This perfect little white. Um, and it's a famous sort of medieval, um, you know, 
Jesus is like the pearl and Mary. I mean, there are all these symbolisms. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a lot of symbolism with pearls. So, you know, so the symbolism is important. All right. Anyway. So her story is that uh, when she gets old enough to, you know, decide things for herself, like seven or ten or whatever it is, sort of, um, she decides she wants to be baptized. So she is. She's baptized. Um, and her family is not Christian. They think this is stupid, but, you know, you can't really stop her. Um, you know, she's noble enough, so she can kind of do what she wants. Um, and then when she's 15, she's started, spotted by a Roman prefect, who, prefect, um, and, you know, who, of course, wants to marry her, and she refuses him, you know, because she's Christian, she wants to live as a virgin, which is very important for early martyrs, um, and so he has her brutally tortured, graphic detail, um, and she's put in jail when the torture doesn't work, and, like, light shines around her, um, and she prays to God, um, to be able to see her enemy, and a dragon appears, and she makes the sign of the cross, and the dragon vanishes. Um, or, much better known, <laughs> um, Jacobus doesn't like this part, though. So this is a sort of quote from the sort of usual English translation. Um, and he says, uh, Or, as we read elsewhere, the dragon opened its maw over her head, put out its tongue under her feet, and swallowed her in one gulp. But when it was trying to digest her, she shielded herself with the sign of the cross, and by the power of the cross, the dragon burst open, and the virgin emerged unscathed. What is said here, however, about the beast swallowing the maiden and bursting asunder is considered apocryphal and not to be taken seriously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. So we get a little authorial commentary there from our Dominican. Like, dragon, sure, but it swallowing her is just one step too far. Yes. Okay. Yes. The, and the idea that the dragon would appear, we all know that that's symbolic of the devil, right? Okay. But presumably, Jacobus de Vorgine here thinks that this is probably more of like a vision, mm -hmm. right? She has shown a vision of her enemy. She makes the sign of the cross. It disappears. The idea that an actual dragon appears, like a physical dragon and swallows her, yeah. he does not go that far. Okay. <laughs> but he is pretty much alone in his sense that this is apocryphal, which is to say that this is what everyone absolutely wants to be true, obviously. Right. Right? And there's actually more to this legend. So... The dragon, you know, bursts, she emerges unscathed, um, and then the drive, the devil tries again as a man, and just shows up, you know, looking as a man. Okay. And um, she grabbed him by the head, pushed him to the ground, planted her right foot on his head, and said, Lie still at last, proud demon, under the foot of a woman. Hmm. Um, and the demon cried out, Blessed Margaret, I'm beaten. If I'd been beaten by a young man, I wouldn't mind, but by a tender girl. <laughs> and I feel even worse, because your father and mother were friends of mine. Oh, <laughs> yes oh, goodness yes her family is damned slash not christian yeah, yeah. Well, um girl yeah i mean it's yes. still pretty good yes it's a phenomenal moment um that you know of course right this is the female version of saint george of the dragon um to say the least and yeah it's excellent so um and you know there are definitely elements of like tolkien here where eowyn gets to slay the beast because she's you know not oh, a yes. man <laughs> right <laughs> i am no man yes yeah um so yeah so we have this great moment right um, and the next day there's some more miracles um 
Margaret is, you know, they're finally going to murder her and she prays to God um, that, you know, those who invoke her will be given aid, particularly women in childbirth, will give birth to a healthy child. Okay. Um, it's sort of like heaven gives a sign that her prayers have been accepted. Uh, and then she's beheaded. So there we are. She's a murderer. Okay. So we will link to lots of pictures, which you can imagine. The Middle Ages is full of pictures of Margaret emerging from the dragon in various ways. Some of my favorites, I think we might have linked to some of them before, because some of my favorites it have, like, her gown kind of sticking out the end of the dragon's mouth while she's, like, a, popped up out of the middle when it's split. <laughs> oh Stuff like this. There's some really phenomenal Okay. Um, there are also versions of her, like, standing on the dragon like St. George, you know, with her foot on the dragon. Um, very few of them are not dragons. Okay. Which is to say, occasionally there there is one of her standing on the devil. Um, who still obviously looks like a devil, right? There obviously aren't any of her standing on a man, presumably because that is a step too far. Right. Although I gotta say, having said that, there probably is one somewhere. There, I'm sure, was some feminist somewhere who drew a picture of Margaret standing over a guy who's clearly supposed to be the devil um, with her sword drawn and stuff. But yes, mostly it's her on the dragon or occasionally over the devil. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's she's the most famous. She's phenomenal. And obviously, you know, we see why she is the patron saint of childbirth, because she emerges unscathed. Um and the sort of the really funny part, of course, um, is that the dragon in this case is clearly not the mother, right? She is both the mother and the child. Mm -hmm. Right? She is a woman emerges unscathed. Um and also the sense, like, as a child emerging safely. Oh, okay. So that's why right. she's interested in childbirth, even though she's, a like, a 15-year-old virgin. Virgin, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And the dragon, of course, is the enemy, right? Which, you know, modern readings, of course, have also pointed out that then the devil appearing as a man, right? Sort of men, meaning sex, meaning pregnancy, are closely tied to this idea of them kind of being the enemy of women and women's health. Okay. In an interesting well, way, right? I mean, yeah. in a certain straightly connected manner, if you don't get pregnant, you won't die in childbirth. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the things are related. Yes. Yeah. Um, but obviously, yes. But, you know, the funny thing is, Obviously, like if you're praying to a saint, the chances are pretty good that that saint is a virgin, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is why it also makes sense to occasionally pray to like a male baby, because, you know, that's the baby part. Sure, <laughs> which yeah. makes sense. Um, but yeah, so, but Margaret's sort of fight. It's also worth pointing out that um, although that the sort of imagery of women in childbirth as in battle is not uncommon in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, the Aztecs are probably the most famous for this imagery because they straight out um, had a group of, I guess, goddesses. I don't know. The Siwatateo are the spirits of women who died in childbirth. Oh. And they are seen as warriors, right? So the same as, like, men who die in battle. It's like being basically. a Valkyrie. Yes. Except yeah. not... In, uh, Except Denmark that Valkyrie are and, in battle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, I also like the Valkyrie really are in battle, right. of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Siwatateo are 
that's the point, right? They have died in childbirth, but they are envisioned as essentially women who died in battle. Um, yeah, which makes a lot of sense, obviously, right? The violence, mm-hmm. the potential for death. A lot of blood. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so that that's sort of the most, um, I would say that is probably the fullest extent to which that has been sort of thought out by a culture. The see what detail. But it certainly is a common image in a lot of cultures. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, you know, is makes that kind of obvious for, you know, Europeans, Christianity. Um, that sort of idea. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's great. And it's very sort of, um, you know, it, it is a kind of very important sort of feminist image in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and it brings up a lot of things that, of course, are still important, <laughs> um, which is, this isn't funny exactly, but a few years ago, um, at the big medieval conference at Kalamazoo, someone gave a talk on, like, images of childbirth and St. Margaret. Um, this is not one of the better talks I've heard at Kalamazoo. I just want to state that in advance, because mostly you hear very good things. But this was a talk where the person giving it um, seemed to not realize that all the things she was talking about still happened in childbirth. I think another way to say that is this is someone who definitely had not had a child of her own. Uh. <laughs> and I would say had not known anyone who'd had a kid. What? I mean, <laughs> it was very strange. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, but at the end, when there were time for questions, I was, I really wondered, I was like, who's going to speak up first? And, you know, you saw a number of hands go up, mostly like the women in the audience sort of all put their hands up. There were all their talks. I mean, it was a panel. And, you know, and then at the end, you ask questions of everybody. But the first hands to go up across the board were like women in the audience. And, you know, one of them was chosen to ask her question. And she said, you know, my question is for this person who gave the talk on Margaret. Um, and she basically said, you realize that childbirth hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's like, all of, all of these things still happen. Like women still die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And the woman was shocked <laughs> to find this out. Oh, no. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it really was an instance of, like, medievalists have this sort of, you know, there's this stereotype of, like, the scholar who does yes. not know what the modern world is like. But this this was a step, like, way too far. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so, yes, I mean, this is also, she is one of those saints who is still very relevant, I think is the point. Um, far more relevant than she should be, mm-hmm. really. I mean, at this point. Um but yeah, and it also brings back, of course, something that we have talked about sort of before tangentially, and we'll probably talk about again tangentially, but also worth mentioning with James Barry, um, who again, right, was trans, but the extent to which um, women were generally not allowed to be doctors. Right. So the Middle Ages is, of course, when we see the, prof- the slow professionalization of this profession, right? And midwives... Um, you know, midwife, the assumption is that, that it's derived from sort of a word like with the wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and obstetrics comes from the Latin word verb sort of for, um, same as obstacle, actually, but meaning to like stand before or against, block the way. Um, and the, the ix on the end is the female ending for the noun. Okay. Right. So a man who does this or a woman who does this, obstetrics. <laughs> is literally a woman who does this with an I-X. Hmm. Now we spell it with a C, yeah. right? But, yeah, obstetrics, it's a woman who does this, right? So the woman who, like, either stands beside 
Or maybe who stands in the way in the sense of, like, you know... Catching the baby. Catching the baby. Yeah, basically. Okay. Right? Um, anyway, so... Um, or the woman who helps, you know, with obstacles. Who knows? But anyway, but yeah, so there's this sense of, you know, the woman who does this is the point, right? So um, the weird thing that that term then becomes the term for the entire field... Mm-hmm. <laughs> spelled a little differently. Yeah. Um, a field that is made predominantly male, right? Professionalization has the tendency to shove women out. We've sort of talked about this before a little bit. Um, and famously, right, uh, once you hit sort of the 1600s, it's all over. But through the Middle Ages, you watch this happen mm-hmm. as women are slowly pushed out of the field of sort of gynecology and obstetrics um, and men take over. And then we have a few hundred years of men, you know, taking over. Like, you know, women don't become doctors again until like the late 1800s. And really, obviously not until the mid-1900s do you have, do you really have women back in obstetrics. Yeah. Um, now the field seems to be largely female. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Although the doctor who performed my C-section <laughs> was male. Oh, wow. But he was nice. Cool. I mean, I knew him for, you know, an hour. Right. It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I suppose also, right, it depends a little bit, because a surgeon, you know, mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe, I mean, that's also a little specific. Barry, of course, also a surgeon, it's worth pointing out. Yes. So not just a doctor. This is, of course, yes. the point that James Barry was a surgeon. Um, which, of course, is a step up in professionalization and therefore wasn't always, right? Surgeon, you know, like a barber surgeon used to be way down the line, <laughs> but eventually becomes a, a step up in professionalization and therefore even fewer women do that. Right. Uh, but anyway, but so this is how midwives essentially get shoved out. Um and of course, recently now, right, the idea of sort of midwives and doulas and so on has come back into it. Um, mm-hmm. And the point being, of course, you know, the care of the woman as a whole. Yeah. And not just the medicalization of childbirth. Yeah. Um, but this has, yeah, this has been a problem, you know, for yeah. 800 to 1,000 years, basically. <laughs> I have to say, I've, I have met a couple of uh, nurse midwives and they do have like a very different bedside manner than the obstetricians I've dealt with. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like they're just very friendly and like very interested in how are you feeling, as opposed to like this sort of what are your symptoms, which yes. is a similar. And like I don't want to sound like I'm slagging off my doctors; they're great people and helped me a lot, but. Um, the midwives were always, like, very touchy-feely. Yes. Yeah. And arguably, there is a place for that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in all medicine, mm-hmm. but certainly in something like obstetrics, where there's so much more going on than just how you feel. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And this is the point, right? So in the Middle Ages as well, I mean, a good midwife... It w- wasn't just about her being able to deliver the baby. It was very much about bedside manner. This is sort of the thing talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And to come back to Barry for a second, which is just funny, because apparently he was supposed to be like a <laughs> a real SOB, I think would be the term. Yeah. I feel like I read he got into some fights with Florence Nightingale or something. Oh, she hated him, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And when she, you know, heard, you know, that... Um, genetically or you know biologically or whatever that perhaps he was a woman um that 
and also and it should be pointed out also that there's a little bit of a discussion because a doctor who knew him very well who signed the death certificate who signed his death certificate as said that he was male um when asked later said well you know i thought maybe he's a maphrodite or something you know anyway so uh you know the actual sort of gender sexuality and so on of barry is a little unclear asexual would seem to probably cover how he was as a person though um and and apparently trans in today's parlance but it, you know um but also kind of a jerk but definitely a, a really horrible person always yeah florence nightingale wrote when finding out that a I think this might be in the Wikipedia thing. I don't know, but it's definitely around various places. But supposedly wrote sort of that he was like one of the worst people she'd known or the hardest people or the coldest people, something like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she clearly doesn't – it's not that she doesn't believe that, you know, she doesn't really care who he was <laughs> otherwise. Right. Um, but definitely, you know, <laughs> this is what she thought of him. But the funny thing is that Despite all of that, he was supposed to have an amazing bedside manner. That this is one wow. of the things that really set him apart. So apparently he was, like, terrible to sort of maybe the people he worked with. Um, he loved animals, though, okay. which is frequently common for people who can't stand other people. Um, but had a great bedside manner. So so did realize that that was an important part of being a doctor, basically. Okay. Um, which is fair. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, he was not alone at the time, certainly, in thinking that. But it was definitely sort of one of those newfangled things, like washing your hands, right, um, mm-hmm. that was, you know, there, was, there were all these questions. There are still all these questions. Is it more or less professional to have a good bedside manner, right? Mm-hmm. This is sort of the, pro- the issue, as though somehow being – if. Somehow being friendly makes you less professional. This isn't true just for medicine either. It's true for pretty much everything. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, you could also say that the way Barry acted in some ways was a way, you know, you could be have a great bedside manner. But as long as you were jerked to everybody else, you were still a professional. <laughs> like, there's a bit of a sense in which that is kind of true, arguably, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. to this day. Um, yeah, so that's a huge issue. And is one of the terrible things that happens. And so the Middle Ages, yeah, a lot of midwives, that was sort of the point. They had a great bedside manner. Um, a lot of sort of the, there are midwives who we know of because obviously they helped nobility. Some of them were very well thought of. Um, and I think Henry VII ended up giving the midwife who helped all of his wives' kids, um, he gave her like an annual annuity sort of or whatever, you know, annual income. <laughs> um, okay. I think at this point after his, you know, after Elizabeth had died, so after his wife had died, but you know, so the midwife would not be on call anymore clearly, but um, yeah, that she had been, that's what she had, you know, the reputation she had for them basically. Um, and there were even some Royal women who were known as excellent sort of, um, they didn't necessarily call themselves midwives, but they, were known for being present at the births of, you know, people in the household and for their mm-hmm. bedside manner and so on. Um, yeah, so that was very much a prized part of it and something that obviously started to disappear with professionalization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the point, of course, for all of this is that the sort of reminder of how similar things were, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um because there is a tendency to think of them as very different, and particularly in this area, things are not nearly as different as they should be. I guess is the point. 
So when it comes to sort of childbirth, when it comes to the mortality of women and children in childbirth, um, we have yes. not improved these things to the extent that we should have. Certainly not in the U.S. I mean, some first world mm-hmm. countries are doing much better. But yeah, I think that there might be a bill in front of Congress right now. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, it will have passed. Uh, but who knows with the speed the government works. Yes. Um, designed <laughs> to help study and come up with solutions to reduce the mortality rate of black women during childbirth. Yes. Um, which tends to be quite a bit higher than, than uh, yes. non-Hispanic white women. Yeah. Even so. when, um, you know. Across socioeconomic yes. uh, levels. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, this is sort of a reminder, of course. The so call your the congressperson. Same. Yes. If you- <laughs> yes. Make sure that passes. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, you know, and so it's the same in the Middle Ages. Obviously, class has a lot to do with things in the Middle Ages as well. But in this instance, you know, I mean, it just sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, so childbirth um, and also child practices. So they have a midwife versus a doctor, which, again, doesn't really happen till the end of the Middle Ages, but then... Very progressively, right? As men sort of take over, women get shoved out, mm-hmm. the whole bedside manner changes, the sort of medicalization of, you know, all of this. Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea you're seems care- like all that. Yeah. The first thing you do as you're creating a profession is like you sort of defend the boundaries of it. Yes. Right. And you're like, yeah. this is going to be part of what we do. And so you, you know, kick you out because you have different background or different training or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the idea, you know, as men move into things, women get shoved out. Also, salaries go up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As the reverse happens, salaries go down, Mm -hmm. which is why. So, for example, the more men who get into nursing, women don't get shoved out of nursing. But the more men who get into nursing, the higher nurses' salaries go. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, whereas, of course, the more women get into higher education... Women, the majority of K to twelve teachers, but the more women get yeah. into professor jobs and academia and so on, the lower professor salaries get. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, and of course, the less likely tenure, all the rest of it, is that the women are necessarily less likely to get tenure, although that too. But like, you know, tenure going away, all these things sort of start to happen. Yeah, right. As as it becomes seen as something like women do. Um. Now, all this being said, we're going to get so. There's another famous moment here. Um, next up, after birth, of course, eventually, <laughs> we'll talk about this, is baptism. Mm-hmm. And when we reach a point in the Middle Ages where it is decided that, first of all, kids have to be baptized to get into heaven. <laughs> um, okay. Which, secondly... So that wasn't always, that wasn't always the belief. No. So this is really important, because sort of the point is... Um, We're going to start around, like, um, (laughs) Augustine, who is very famous, can we say? Um, So, you know, Mm -hmm. 354 to 430, Augustine. Um, He is famously baptized as an adult by Ambrose of Milan, uh, Ambrose 340 to 397. The idea is that being baptized purifies you, right? Like, that's it. This is fresh start. So you might as well like, right. be baptized kind of as late in your life as possible so you have much less time to 
mess it up. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is what confession is okay. for, obviously, and penance and so on. Sure. But like, you know, you might as well wipe away as much of your sin as possible with that baptism, right? That you just have a lot less to do penance yeah. for. There, yeah. Um, just get it all out of your system. Yes. So, you know, yeah, Augustine is buried, is baptized as an adult. Um, but Ambrose himself said he didn't know. And this, oh, wait, this is the thing. Yeah, so it was common for it to be adults, right, for this reason. Um, although Augustine has other reasons, of course, also for being an adult. But anyway, but it was sort of common that you would be an adult. Um, so this is the 300s, right, into the 400s. Um, Ambrose says, though, that he doesn't know if unbaptized kids go to heaven, basically. He doesn't know if they're saved. Hmm. Um Obviously, unbaptized adults aren't, but kids, you know, there's that question. Like, have you really done anything that's going to get you in trouble? But Ambrose was definitely <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't have kids, probably. Um, yeah. I'm going to assume that he didn't. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with the fact he probably didn't. Um, and yes, so here we go. I mean, and I want to acknowledge, of course, if he did, they would have been illegitimate. But obviously, plenty of churchmen had illegitimate kids that they loved very much. Right. Um all right, so Ambrose says he doesn't really know if you're saved. The hint definitely seems to be that you probably aren't. Um, and Augustine said straight up that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. So he does mm-hmm. start to recommend the earlier you baptize kids, the better. Um, now, this is a little bit of a switch because uh, Tertullian, around 200, actually thought that um, children should not be baptized because the sponsors of baptized children, these are the godparents, of course, as we call them today, um, you know, you have to promise in today's parlance, essentially, right, that the kids will, like, be good Catholics and be brought up in the church and that they will believe in, you know, <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and all these things. Um, yeah. And Tertullian was like, you can't promise what a kid's going to do, so you might be perjuring yourself. <laughs> Which is brilliant and amazing and a yeah. great commentary on, like, let the kids decide for themselves. Yeah. Which is not how we tend to think of religion today. No. Um... But obviously, he is very quickly outruled, right? So that's 200. And by the time we hit the mid 300s, Ambrose is nope. And then Augustine, of course, also nope. (laughs) Even more nope. Um, That being said, generally speaking, there'd be baptisms, you know, I mean, the church is working on stuff. So first of all, it takes a while. You know, you have to get to like the eight, nine hundreds before you can sort of guarantee that in most of Europe, everyone kind of has a local parish, probably. You know, okay. it takes a while to get to the point where everyone has easy access to a priest. So, so for a long time, even if Ambrose says whatever in the 400s, you know, for some hundreds of years, people are probably being baptized like sort of once a year. Someone will come through for oh. like Easter or for Christmas yeah. or something and if, and all the kids in the parish will be baptized. You know, so some of them it, will have been like just maybe, born. Yeah. Hmm? Do all the weddings, do all the yep. baptisms. Exactly. Yeah, famously. This is actually... <laughs> this is totally a side point, but uh, Conan O'Brien, who's mm-hmm. awesome, and also happens to be Catholic, but that is not related to this story, has an assistant who's awesome, Sonia Mosesian, who's Armenian, um, and her family famously fled, you know, the... Turkey, right? Yeah, the genocide, yeah. which the U.S. doesn't necessarily call a genocide, so it's not to, like, piss people off, but it was definitely a genocide. It was a genocide. Yeah, and... um. She just announced on his podcast that she's pregnant, which he apparently was the first person to know other than her and her husband. Because <laughs> she was like, you know, anyway, they talk about this on the podcast. We'll link to it. Everyone should listen to the section. It's hilarious. But um, yes, 
But he he brings up, they don't go in detail, but Conan mentions that um, her father, apparently, this is basically what happened to him. I don't know if he if he does or doesn't know his exact birthday, but his birth certificate was recorded in whatever month, maybe like February or something, um, because essentially that was sort of what happened, right? There was the priest who came through every few months and would record all the births from the previous few months. Yeah. Um, and so I think he knows, like, you know, because his mom would know when he was born. Because, mm-hmm. But this is what happened in the Middle Ages as well. Like, your baptism might be recorded. Your specific birth date might or might not be recorded. Your, you know, there were definitely people who knew. Like, your parents would know. You would know. Um, but yeah. records being sort of what they are, you know. Um, so there's so this, this is sort of, we've mentioned that we don't really know Shakespeare's birth date, but we right. sort of guess that it's a few days before his baptism was recorded. Yes, because we know, so this is the point, right? That eventually, when everyone has access to a parish priest, basically, this kind of thing kind of stops, and you are baptized within a few days. So by the time we get to Shakespeare, you know, 1564, um, you are mm-hmm. baptized generally within, like, three days. So this is why, and it was usually about three days. Could be yeah. two, could be four, though. <laughs> so this is why he's baptized on the 26th. That's when it's recorded. The mm-hmm. average was three days. So this is why we can assume he probably was born on the 23rd. Probably. But he okay. could have been born on the 24th or on the 22nd. Right. But that, yes, that is where that comes from. Um, but that's the funny thing, it's right? It's hard to keep track of time with all the sleep deprivation anyway. So, yes. you know. Well, yeah. Um, but we know, so this is the thing, right? For legal reasons, birthdays were important, right? Um, you had to know when someone turned whatever age, because that's when they got to inherit, or that's when they got to do this mm-hmm. or that or whatever. Um, also, just things like apprenticeship or whatever, you know, you would go off when you were about X old, and you would, then, then you, you know, from however many birthdays, yeah. bring us back to the parts of Penzance, right? He's apprenticed not until he's 21, but until his 21st birthday, and he was born on leap day. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, right. So yes. this is Gilbert and Sullivan making fun of this idea, right? So he has until he's like eighty four, right? Um. So anyway, so this idea, right? So baptism, yeah. We have this slow move in the Middle Ages where you absolutely want it to be earlier and earlier because you want your kid to be saved, and the more that becomes pronounced as an idea, then of course, luckily, not luckily, but I mean. You know, this is how people are, right? The extent to which you have access to a local priest <laughs> kind of probably tends to mesh with the extent to which you believe that your kid has to be baptized to be saved, right? And sure. by the time we hit kind of the sort of high Middle Ages, where it's pretty inescapable, um, limbo has is basically created as the place where kids will go if they're not baptized, at this point, luckily, people do have access, right? So the point really is to scare people into getting their kids baptized, and it works. Okay. <laughs> and everyone can, right. because now you do have access, right? But it's also to make sure that, like, parish priests aren't just doing baptisms once a year at Easter or whatever. Um, or, you know, wandering around and, like, collecting all the births every few months, as, like, mm-hmm. may have been happening in Armenia recently. Um, but that it's immediate, 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 right? Um, now, the thing is, of course, the more you scare parents, the more scared parents get. So, um, you simultaneously get the creation of emergency baptism, which is still a thing. And that is that anyone can baptize a kid if necessary, if there is a fear of death and childbirth. 
And that okay. includes women who are midwives, which is where we are going with this. Yeah. And this is phenomenal because obviously women are not supposed to be doing anything of most sacramental kinds at all. Right? right. Women are not priests. Specifically. But midwives can perform an emergency baptism. Wow. Okay. And the key here, of course, is burial because just like anyone else, right, if you're not baptized, you don't get buried in the churchyard, right? So no family tomb or gravestone next to your parents or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and this itself means that then there is also a huge trade in relics and shrines and saints who bring kids back to life, sometimes uh, permanently, yes. I mean, but sometimes just so that they can be baptized. Mm -hmm. Um and this also kind of brings us to um, the, I don't know, some people have this question. I think maybe it's a little less common now than it used to be. But there were, um, I'm specifically going to blame one scholar. All right. <laughs> Philippe Arias, um, who is a very well-known, yeah, I mean, he's a very well-known, he's super, super famous medieval scholar. Um, and he had this whole idea that... Um, Modern childhood, modern con the modern concept just of childhood, like is a time when kids get to frolic and play, um, and modern uh, connections between adults and their children. He had this whole idea that somehow that that didn't exist in the Middle Ages, which is complete BS. I mean, it's just obviously astonishing BS. Right. And everyone has said so since, but it became so influential that a lot of people will say things like, oh, parents didn't get attached to their kids, so they were like 10 and they knew they'd survive. No! That's complete BS. Obviously, there have always been terrible parents- but that's right. not, that's like a different issue, right? Um, that is a, that's a totally different issue. Um, no, that's complete BS. And that's why there are things like emergency baptism. And, you know, why that's women funny. Have, I've seen I mean, people are allowed to do it. even make yeah. reference to that, like in the last month, reading an article about oh, um, what? childbirth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, because, okay. <laughs> So some some women when they give birth they f they describe feeling this like amazing moment of love and connection with their baby and some women feel like it's a more gradual process and like obviously this is kind of like well some people it's kind of a traumatic giving birth and it takes a while to you know feel better yeah. about that but one article that I read um, no. was like, oh, this might be a leftover from when <gasps> humans didn't know if their babies would live right away, so they wouldn't get attached right away. No! <laughs> so this idea is <laughs> really prevalent. No! No! I mean, literally, it's the opposite. Like, our species is created for immediate attachment so that the kid survives. Like, that's how right. your children survive, is because parents become attached to their children. Mm -hmm. We would have died off as a... It takes us, yeah. like, you know, what? At best, 12 to 14 years to be able even moderately live on our own. And that's like, you know... Yes. It's never been true that a kid could live on their own really earlier than, like, 14 or 15. I mean... Yeah, that's... A, yeah, that never. would be terrifying. No. <laughs> like, even back when people frequently died at 20 like kids might get married earlier but you didn't actually go live together till you were like 14 or 15 
And even that usually only happened for, like, people who are royal or noble, and you'd have a household taking right. care of you, you know? <laughs> yeah, you'd be under supervision of the king or yeah. whoever. Right. right. Like, yeah. you weren't... Yeah. So it's like, I mean, you can't have, a, like, a species that <laughs> takes that long to grow up. Are you, yeah. like, you can't not be attached because your species will die out. Mm-hmm. Like, that is basic evolutionary biology. Yeah. Um, so, 100% no. But you're right. It is this stupid, stupid thing that people still believe. Um, and that's the thing, right? Because it's, this is the really sort of sad thing that archaeologists do, right? Is prove this stuff wrong by, like, digging up all these graves of kids. And you see all yeah. the beautiful stuff they're buried with. And, you know, sometimes they clearly didn't live at all. And that'll be on the gravestone. Like, they will have a stone. It'll be like, born and died on this day, you know? Or um, Nicholas Orm's Medieval Children, which we'll talk a lot more about next time. He has this thing about, you know, um, where he said, on the one hand, birthdays might not be recorded as much in records, but people definitely knew. Um, and so there's this guy who had to bury one of his kids, and he, like, knew exactly how many, like, years, months, and days old she was. Mm-hmm. And it's all on the gravestone. You know, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, I think there are two things. Like, it's a sense of, like, somehow as though modern people are superior, right? Um, but there's also, I think, this weird sense of you want to be able to ascribe, you know, parenting is hard. Stuff is hard. Mm-hmm. Things don't always like work out the way you want them to. Um, and I think there's also a sense of wanting somehow to ascribe um, all of the hard stuff to like evolution, right? Sure. So like, which it, of course some of it is, sure, but things like postpartum depression or, um, you know, things like that, right? And just be like, well, yes, and you know, it has always been hard and it's difficult, and blah, 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 but, you know, in modern times, we've learned to love our children. But, no, that's... <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, yeah. Like, our species would literally have died out if, if that was how it worked. Um, that is definitely not how it works. And this is why, like, women were allowed to baptize infants. Like, midwives were allowed to emergency baptize. Because you ha- your kid had to be saved. Right? Um, and if that didn't work out, then absolutely, you went to a shrine, you pre- you know, you did whatever. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a thriving trade in this in the Middle Ages, unfortunately, right? Um, but then there are also a lot of wonderful miracles where the kid is saved, you know? Um, and in retrospect, of course, you look at these miracles, you're like, well, this kid had the wind knocked out of him and was unconscious for three hours, but clearly didn't die and come back to life. But, right. you know, as a parent, I'm sure the parents felt like the kid had died and come back to life. I mean, my God, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there's a very thriving trade in keeping your kids alive and making sure they're baptized. Yes. And all of the same things that we do today. Um, I will say that, like, the idea of um, using scare tactics on parents yes. is also something that continues to this day. Oh, God, yes. Because you cannot, you cannot go shopping without being like, well, do I love my child enough to buy the $20 car seat? Yep. Or do I love them enough to buy the $300 car seat? Yes. Right? Yes. And, like, you know, kind yes. of, you're like, well, there's a safety standard that everybody has to meet, so they're both probably fine. Yep. But then you're like, $300 car seat? 
Yep. Like, yep. <laughs> no, absolutely. Every, every single thing that you buy for an infant is designed like that. Yes. And that's the thing. That has always been true. That has always been true. <laughs> I mean, probably this long before written better. records. Yeah. yeah, of course. Right. Um, but next time, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about things like toys <laughs> and games. Ah, yes. Um, and yeah, but we. You know, we could finish off with some things like, um, obviously, right, this was sort of the point. So it's starting with the, the midwife, just as today it starts with, like, what hospital, what doctor you did go to, right? Um, mm-hmm. The rich always can afford better than people who are not rich, right? So, yeah. yes, <laughs> um, the poor, of course, can afford whatever they can. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that while the rich can afford the best midwives and can, of course, afford the best, you know, whatever comes with the midwife, nursing. Mm-hmm. We'll talk probably a little more about that in a sec. But, um, and obviously clothes and yes, all the things that are surrounded to keep a kid safe. And, you know, um, in the Middle Ages as well, right? There's definitely sort of evidence that the poor will pay for what they can. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, you know, you will still pay a midwife more than you like, it's probably going to be a much greater percentage of a poor person's income yeah. than a rich person. A rich person will pay more, but it'll be a much smaller percentage of their income, right? Um, yeah, and that's, you know, because absolutely, because you pay you pay whatever you can. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and that is the point, yeah. Um, and so whether it's toys, whether it's the midwife, whether it's the nurse, um, yeah, absolutely. And so I figure we'll sort of maybe end a little bit here, but scare tactics – I thought you might also mention, um, in addition to cost, are things like, do you give your kid formula or do you nurse them? Right? Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, in the Middle Ages, of course, there was also another option, which is less common today, sort of. Somewhat less common today, at least, in many places. Um, but that was you had somebody else nurse your kid for you. Ah, yes. The wet nurse. Yes. Which was a profession. Absolutely. So women who were in wet nurses. Today, it is possible to donate uh, breast milk or to receive donated breast milk. Mm -hmm. Although I'm told that for people who don't have babies that are um, ill, it can be very expensive for like, like, I don't know, $8 an ounce or something. Yeah. And this is the thing, like wet nurses in the Middle Ages could be expensive if it was like just for you, or, you know, you might live in a village where there was a woman who was one, and particularly if she was like between rich clients or something, she would definitely like take in kids to make sure she kept her milk Mm -hmm. up and stuff, right? So that might be slightly less expensive. Um, But but these were sort of the options. Um, And of course, there are still things like formula. I mean, it wasn't anything close to what it is today, but obviously, yeah, you know. All, you know, so all, all of these options have also always existed, um, and that is the thing that they did in the Middle Ages. And again, you afforded what you could that you thought was best. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the same arguments happened. Like, should a woman nurse her kid herself? What happens if the wet nurse does blah, blah, blah? What if the, has been, the wet nurse has been drinking and you don't know it and they guess the kid ends up, you know, all these same questions, right, that are around today. Yeah. Have always been around. Um, yes, there's always sort of scaremongering and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. So that's sort of that. Um, something else that, of course, this gets talked about a lot more in the Middle Ages. So wet nursing on the one hand, nursing and wet nursing on the one hand, um, weaning on the other hand, 
right? This was a big mm-hmm. moment, a land sort of landmark moment for Kid, um, in a way that today, I don't know that it's quite the same. I'm not sure. No, I mean, for people, women I've talked to who do really extended breastfeeding um, until the child is like two or three find it to be a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people who wean earlier, like by the time the kid is one, it's less Traumatic. It's less of a big deal because you aren't having less arguments with the one-year-old. Right, right. <laughs> yes. But... Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So weeding, um, this is a big thing. Obviously, you know, even Shakespeare, I mean, there are tons of metaphors about it and stuff where he discusses it. Um, famously, like Roman Juliet, the nurse mentions it. Um, but that's definitely, right, that's its whole own sort of rite of passage. Um, which, again, brings us, of course, to the idea of sort of age and rite of passage, all of those things are just as important in the Middle Ages as they are now. Um, mm-hmm. And instead of there being less of them, I mean, in some ways, there are maybe more of them because there are things like weaning that we kind of don't. Maybe they're just different. I guess there aren't less or more, but they're different. Ones, yeah. Right. So today, you know, but first words, first time you walked, these would be important as well. But like weaning would be a big one. Maybe it isn't today. Um, there's probably something else that is big today. I don't know. People people like to people still like to have whatever first thing that you know the first time they ate solid foods right. or yeah, which would know, be the similar. The first time yeah. they smiled or right. The first time they crawled. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's like an infinite number of firsts that you can come up with. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's worth pointing out again, I think we think of that as new, and it really isn't new at all. Um, you know, this has sort of always been the case. The things that are new are things they literally couldn't do in the Middle Ages, like gender reveal parties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, oh my God. like, oh, God help us. Yeah. They um, did not have ultrasounds <laughs> in the Middle Ages. But no. um, pretty much anything else. I was else, listening you know, yeah. to my mom talk to a couple of other women in their 70s. And they didn't even have gender ultrasounds in, like, the 70s yeah. slash 80s. Right. So yeah. it's very new. Yeah. But... Of course. Um, yeah. I mean... No, I mean, like, so... And don't burn down forests and stuff or start fires yeah. in California. Yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's cool. It's cool if you want to, like, put some M&Ms in a cake or something, right. I guess, if you care that much. Right. It's, like, it involves people. It's a nice ritual, but... Fire should not be involved. It is, of course, reinstilling heteronormative sensibilities, but... I feel like, yeah, I mean, like, (laughs) a lot of pregnancy can be pretty lonely, especially... Right, it's a chance for a party. I Mm -hmm. just feel like fire and babies should not come up in the same sentence. It feels weird. Right. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, leave the But also, like, when you think about babies, they're very blank for a long time and so like when you spend a lot of time looking at the baby whenever they do something new it's very exciting and i assume that this is true regardless of what era you're living in that you're like you know oh absolutely something different happened today so yeah and the funny thing is also i would say it's something they did no matter how many children Mm -hmm. they had right because you could also have like it was much more common to have had like 10 kids 
or 12 kids or 14 kids, you know, Marjorie Kemp. Um, and yet, you know, she yeah. still loves babies. She super loves babies. So many <laughs> so, children. Oh, um, yes. Oh. Yeah. Can you imagine being still being? I mean, we make jokes today about like the third kid. Nobody cares when yeah. we start talking, right? <laughs> like maybe nobody notices. But um, clearly, you know, that's a joke, of course. But also clearly, kind of um, same mm-hmm. now as then. I mean, obviously, parents do still care, right? Um, and then they tended to have a lot more kids yeah. to care about. Um, and in the cases in which, you know, sometimes very few of them, but sometimes quite a lot of them would live not just through, like, toddlerhood, but on at least into sort of teenage, maybe adulthood. Um, yeah, that's a lot of, you know, milestones of all kinds, um, that you are celebrating and, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, yeah, so this sort of silly silly stupid idea i do also want to point out just so that we can be clear how stupid this idea is and how could someone come up with it really it doesn't even make any sense um that in genesis (laughs) 21 um famously when hagar has to you know gets kicked out by abraham um and sent out into the desert right with ishmael and she thinks they're gonna starve or you know die of thirst in the desert um she like leaves him under a bush or something and walks a bow shot away um, and says, you know, like, let me not look upon the child mm-hmm. as he dies. Right. Um, and then, of course, God saves them. But, um, you know, this is the Bible acknowledging that, like, yes, you know, <laughs> like parents were attached to their kids and did yes. not want them to die. All um, right. And that is the thing. Yeah. This seems like a so, good place to leave it um, since... Uh, I'm yes. going to go make some dinner for my children. Um, yes. Next time yes. we'll do the fun part, which is like toys and games and lullabies and nursery oh, nice. rhymes. That'll be exciting. Yes. All of which, of course, also always okay. been around. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. um, okay. Oh, and maybe baby, baby clothes. clothes, which, of course, also have yeah, always been around. Yeah, I guess yes. so. <laughs> you got to put them in something, right? Yep. Maybe not with, like, cute tiny ducks on it, but I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, but you yeah, know, cute okay. somethings. Probably sheep. Definitely tiny shoes. Tiny <laughs> shoes have always been a thing. Nice. Yep. Okay. <laughs> we'll go back to this. Yes. So uh, tune in Yay. for that next time. And uh, in the meantime, you can check us out on Facebook or find our website by searching for Ask a Medievalist. Um, we have a contact us form on the website, or you can email us at questions at askmedievalist.com um and yeah i think that's about it so uh until next time keep washing your hands anyway and uh keep it medieval ask a medievalist is a production of this can't be that hard studios and is not endorsed acknowledged or condoned by virginia commonwealth university or any of its constituent departments Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? 
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 